electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, is a coronavirus treatment getting closer? Very early but optimistic news on Gilead's drug remdesivir. It's yielding encouraging results in a clinical trial, according to a new report. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA head, on this possible hope for a treatment. I don't think this is going to be the one drug answer to this disease, but it can change the contours of the disease and mitigate the worst outcomes for some patients. Speeding up COVID vaccine development and an at-home test you're already half prepared for. The Sanofi CEO explains. Using some cutting-edge technology, uh, plugging it into your phone, and using um, a saliva sample, you should be able to get a result in about 30 minutes. It's Friday, April 17th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. The futures are trading incredibly higher. This is all about that Gilead uh, report that we heard. This was news coming out of a University of Chicago study. We're going to talk more about this in just a little bit. But it was it, it saw a rapid recovery of 125 patients, or most of the 125 patients in that study. In fact, 113 of them had severe disease. Many of them walked out of the hospital or left the hospital, discharged from the hospital after six days, which is incredibly impressive if you're watching this. There have been uh, a lot of people talking about this study. Obviously, that's the reason that you're seeing the futures up. If you could get a therapeutic drug um, that would mean people didn't die of this, that would be amazing. In this study, only two of the people died. And again, most of them recovered very rapidly, much more rapidly than we've seen in other recoveries. There was no placebo up against the remdesivir that they were using. And so there are questions that are being asked about that. These are early results, but again, some very promising signs of hope. If safe and effective, it could become the first approved treatment against COVID-19. The reporter who broke the story spoke to CNBC last night. I did interview a patient who participated in the study, he, he lives in Chicago. He he, you know, was short of breath. All the classic symptoms of COVID nineteen that you have heard about. He had to go to the hospital, and what he told me, and this is just again a single patient's experience, but what he told me was is that essentially he started feeling better like a day after getting remdesivir, and he was in the hospital for four days. He got four days worth of treatment with remdesivir, and he was discharged. Joining us right now to talk more about this and, well, everything else, since we talk to him so often, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's, of course, the former FDA commissioner, CNBC contributor, serves on the board of Pfizer and Illumina. Good morning to you. Uh, The market is rocketing on this news, as is, of course, Gilead's stock itself. Uh, Gilead did put a statement out uh, saying that this is only anecdotal evidence and that we need to wait uh, for the final uh, reports and the studies to be complete but uh, weigh in on what we should be taking away from this news. And again, I, I, I just mentioned why this is so important, because we also had conflicting news out of China, where it appeared they had stopped uh, their studies. And so uh, a lot of the investment community and I think the business of the world was trying to understand what's really happening here. 
Well, right. China stopped the studies because they couldn't fully enroll them because they stopped accruing cases in China because their epidemic had subsided. So we're not going to get a chance to look at that China data. But the Chinese doctors were trying to use remdesivir. So they did have some indication that the drug was promising that they wouldn't have been trying to reach for it um, against all the other drugs that were available to them on an experimental basis. This is one of a growing number of data sets that suggest that remdesivir is an active drug. It's not a slam dunk data set. There were two deaths in 125 patients that were enrolled in this, uh, this portion of the study, this one arm of a, of a larger study. Um, but most of these patients had severe disease, so they were at higher risk of death. And a, number, a lot of the patients did recover, according to the report that uh, Adam Feuerstein was able to get from, uh, from that institution. But it looks like the drug's active. We said that many times on this show. My hunch is that it's going to work earlier in the disease. So if it's introduced early in disease, it can be an effective drug. It's not a slam dunk by any means. I don't think it's a cure for, for the virus. But I think when used early in the disease, it's a good antiviral and a good first-generation antiviral against COVID-19. And as part of a broader therapeutic um, uh, medicine cabinet, if you will, that we might have available by the fall, right. coupling this maybe with one of the therapeutic antibodies that's in development, that could form a pretty robust treatment set against COVID-19. Doctor, let me understand. This is something you have to, you have to, you have to take at a hospital. It's, it's something that, that, that's going to actually be injected into you. Um, and when you say get at it early, uh, currently it appears that most of the people who are taking it are already uh, either on oxygen or ventilators. Is this something that people could take even earlier than that? That's right. I think that a drug like this, if, if, it's, if it works, if it's active against the disease, it's probably going to be most effective when used earlier in the course of disease. So the way this might fit in is when patients have COVID-19 and get first admitted to the hospital, if they have risk factors that would predict that they're going to ha more, be more likely to have a bad outcome, they might be dosed with this right when they get admitted. That's typically where you'd see a drug like this, which blocks viral replication, be most effective. You want to get it in early before you have a lot of virus on board. Sometimes once you have a lot of virus on board, once the virus has been able to replicate in your body and you have a high level um, and it's created a lot of inflammation, simply arresting viral replication at that point and reducing your viral load, as it will, um, doesn't have as strong of a therapeutic effect. So you want to dose these kinds of drugs earlier. That's how we use, for example, Tamiflu, the drug against flu. You want to get that dosed early. You want to take it right when you first have symptoms to have the maximal benefit. I think that's likely to be how they use this drug. There's other studies underway with this drug looking at milder patients, so looking at introducing it earlier in the course of disease. I think that's where we're likely to see the most robust treatment effect. We need to remember if this drug does work, and there are suggestions that it is active against the disease, and we do, have, we do understand its safety profile pretty well because it was put in a lot of patients with Ebola as well. So there's a big safety database with this drug. But if it does work, I don't think this is a cure. I don't think this is going to be the one, one drug answer to this disease. But it can change the contours of the disease and mitigate the worst outcomes for some patients. Yeah. Scott, as you, as you point out, um, it might be in combination with a, uh, with a monoclonal antibody drug, just like with Ebola. And, but, but my point about when it was used with, with Ebola is, uh, and then the, I think the antibody drug worked better after that, so it was kind of supplanted by that. Uh, but there is definitely efficacy right. for, for versus Ebola, and, and we have safety profiles based on it, so that we don't really need to go through as much of that. But you've never really poo-pooed remdesivir, and it should, and rightly so, because the mechanism is so understandable. I mean, it should work because it's it's an analog right. of one of the base pairs that, and it disrupts the polymer, the the, the uh, RNA dependent RNA polymer. It should work, and like you say, right. it, it, I don't know why people weren't more positive all along. Uh, about uh, remdesivir. 
Well, when I, I wrote about five drugs. Two weeks ago, I wrote in the Wall Street Journal about the five drugs I thought had the most um, promise for being available in the fall and, and having a robust enough treatment effect that they can actually change the risk profile for this disease. And the, the five drugs that I called out was remdesivir and in the four therapeutic antibodies that are in development by Amgen, Veer, Biotechnology, Lilly, and Regeneron. And I think one or more of those antibodies can be available by the fall. And you couple that with remdesivir, which might be a weekly active antiviral that's effective particularly early in disease. That's a pretty robust therapeutic armamentarium that can change the contours of the risk profile for this disease. So I think people are always um, thinking that remdesivir could pull through here. Uh, we do have a big safety database from Ebola. Remember, it wasn't effective against Ebola, or if it was effective, it wasn't effective enough to show benefit against the other drugs that it was competing against it for, in that uh, right. master protocol in 2014, one of which was a therapeutic antibody by Regeneron, the same strategy Regeneron is now using against coronavirus. How quickly could, it, let's say just you pull out all the stops. You can't do this off-label even right now, right? So it needs, how quickly could you actually get this uh, prescribable? Uh, for people in the hospital, or do you well, do a lot of tests and just say, "Well, they're all they're part of a test"? Yeah. So there's a there's a broader data set available right now that's probably going to be made public within days, maybe, or certainly within a couple of weeks. I think that's going to include upwards of 400 patients. Um, that data set combined with the compassionate use data that was published a week ago and the fact that they fully enrolled now a very uh, rigorous study being conducted by the National Institutes of Health. I think that's enough uh, data, if it continues to trend positively, to uh, authorize this drug under an emergency use authorization. So you could see the, the drug made available under an EUA by the Food and Drug Administration you know, within a month if that data set continues to show good top-line results, that the drug's having a treatment effect. Because we understand the safety profile fairly well, and now that that NIH study is fully enrolled, the Food and Drug Administration is going to know that they're going to have a definitive answer on this drug one way or another, because that's a very rigorous study. So you might not wait for the results of that study. Knowing that study is fully enrolled and it will read out might give regulators enough confidence to make this drug available under an EUA. Hey, doctor. Um, a question that I keep seeing online and, and different doctors and reports uh, talking about it, and I'm curious where you land, uh, this idea that there could be long-term damage to your lungs and other parts of your body as a result of, uh, of, this, of this virus, uh, even if you make it through to the other side. Um, can you speak to that? How, how does that work? Is, is there long-term damage? Is that just about the severity of, uh, of how much the virus takes over your body? In part, I mean, part of what you're seeing in the literature now is the sequelae of a prolonged hospitalization or, or a prolonged bout of critical care. But there's also a lot of things we're learning about this virus. This virus uh, is, a nasty, is a nasty bug. It's a nasty pathogen. It's causing thrombotic events. It appears to be causing thrombotic events in patients that were previously un unrecognized. So it could be the case that a lot of the rapid decompensation that we were seeing where patients would be doing okay and then suddenly decompensate and require intubation in the hospital might have, not, might have been from pulmonary emboli, blood clots to the lung. Um, we, weren't, we weren't generally looking for blood clots early on because the protocols were to limit contact with patients so you reduce the risk of spread within hospitals. So they weren't routinely doing uh, echocardiograms of the heart or pulmonary emboli studies. Now that they are starting to do those things, they're finding that a lot of these patients have blood clots and that's causing the decompensation. And now more of these patients are being anticoagulated in the hospital, being given blood thinners. So there's a lot we're learning about this virus and things that it does that's atypical for a virus. Um, but it's causing long-term sequelae and, and, you know, downward spiral for a lot of patients. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, you've heard the president's plans and, and, and the idea that some states could be allowed to open up as early as today. 
We are not opening all at once, but one careful step at a time. And some states will be able to open up sooner than others. Some states are not in the kind of trouble that others are in. Now that we have passed the peak in new cases, we're starting our life again. Obviously, some of these governors in, in different regions are working together to try and make sure that they don't have different rules, uh, let's say, between New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. But how concerned would you be about some places opening up today? Are there states that it really is safe enough for that to happen? And when do, when do you think we'll, we'll feel a little better about this or alternatively see a second wave? Well, it's not a binary event. I mean, I think you could start to see some states that haven't been affected that are more rural states and naturally social distance start to resume some activity. For example, some states have, um, you know, banned the lawn care services and outdoor types of services. They might bring that back. Those are low risk. And you might start to bring those back now that we're entering the summer months. Certain construction activity you might bring back because some states already have allowed that. My state, home state of Connecticut, um, there's still that kind of activity going on, even though we've curtailed a lot of other business activities. So you could start to see some activities slowly come back to the states that weren't affected. I think, by and large, the very affected states, particularly in the tri-state area, are going to be looking to start resuming business activity probably mid, mid-May, which is what we've been saying all along. I think they're going to remain on that timetable because you want to see a sustained reduction in cases and then wait one or two weeks after that. We recommend two weeks. And that puts you in mid-May. But you're going to see variability across the country. Um, and when people, when states do start to bring back activity, it's going to be a very gradual process where you bring back certain activity, you wait a week or two to see if there's an upswing in cases based on your testing and your syndromic surveillance data from visits to emergency rooms and other things like that. And then you might bring back additional activity. And as you bring back activity, you're going to put in place certain restrictions on what businesses can do to try to reduce uh, social contact. So you'll have mandates like you have to check patients as at, um, workers as they come in, fever checks, questionnaires. You can only bring back certain complements of employees. You can't bring back everyone at once. People who are over a certain age or have risk factors might be encouraged to stay at home for another week or two. Businesses will be encouraged to continue to telework where they can. So those are going to be some of the kinds of things that get implemented. The one thing that was curious about the recommendations I think the states are unlikely to follow is the guidance that would permit uh, gyms to reopen and also indoor venues, entertainment venues like sporting events. I think states are going to be a little bit more circumspect about those kinds of activities and bring them back after they've brought back workers. Okay. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, thank you, uh, as always, uh, for uh, your insight and perspective. It, uh, it helps us a lot trying to understand what's going on. Next on Squawk Pod, the hunt for a COVID-19 vaccine and the unprecedented collaboration between two global pharma giants to get it out soon. Sanofi's CEO joins us. We believe we're one of the few companies that will be able to make a vaccine at a huge scale. That's right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. 
Drug makers around the globe are teaming up to fight the novel coronavirus pandemic, which has infected about 2 million people worldwide. Just this week, European pharmaceutical giants Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline announced they are combining resources to develop a COVID-19 vaccine and aim to produce a batch within the next 18 months. Sanofi has also committed to donating 100 million doses of the decades-old anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine, a potential but unproven weapon against COVID-19 to 50 countries across the world. President Trump has touted the drug as a potential lifesaver, and Governor Andrew Cuomo has agreed to provide it to thousands of seriously ill patients in New York hospitals in combination with another treatment called Zithromax. But there are critics of hydroxychloroquine. Some say the drug could pose potentially lethal risks to those susceptible to heart conditions. And Sanofi is also partnering with startup Luminostics to create a smartphone coronavirus test. There really is an app for almost everything. But it has become increasingly clear that rapid, reliable mass testing is one of the key strategies for successful containment of the outbreak and for what comes after. Sanofi CEO Paul Hudson joined Joe Kernan today on Squawk Box to discuss the company's coronavirus efforts. Tell us about the vaccine first uh, First off with GSK. That was announced uh, a week ago or so. I guess it was announced on the 14th, so not that long ago. What does it involve? What's the platform in, in uh, the proof of concept that's been done with other vaccines, the, the method you're, you're using? So, well, good morning, Joe and all, and uh, thanks for having me uh, on. Yeah, it's, look, it's a big step. Firstly, it's a collaboration of two large companies bringing the best they have to try and do something to try and get us back to a normal life as soon as possible. So we hope to bring this vaccine through next year. We uh, believe that uh, we're one of the few companies, we're over 100 years old, Sanofi, we believe we're one of the few companies that will be able to make a vaccine at a huge scale. And we're talking 100, 400, 600 million doses next year, which is going to be required to get us there. You know, we also have another shot on goal, by the way, which is an mRNA, a sort of uh, cutting edge technology, and we're bringing both forward. We're the only company, I think, with two vaccines, two shots on goal, and we're delighted to be bringing them forward and, um, and trying to do something to help patients next year right across the world. Testing is also something that, that everyone thinks, in lieu of the 18 months that you're talking about for a vaccine, uh, if, if you knew or, or that you already had it, if you knew... Uh, you know, who did and who didn't, who was susceptible. So there's a startup called Luminostics. So that what, you, what you're envisioning is a way for people not to go anywhere near uh, the, a healthcare worker or a hospital setting or a testing, but completely able to do something at home, self-administer the test. Uh, and then can you go, go into how that will work and you get the results on your, there's an app on your smartphone. How does yeah. it exactly, what, what do you envision, Paul? Well, well let, let me t- a step back, you know, getting to normal next year and restarting is going to be about vaccines and about people knowing whether they uh, have the virus or not. And, you know, um, we did the, the collaboration on the vaccine in three weeks for two large companies. And then at the other end of the scale, we partner with a small uh, startup um, in, in less than 14 days. And we did it because it's quite clear that people need to and people want to know where they stand. Uh, do they have it or not? And they don't. Will, uh, they will not always get the opportunity to go to a healthcare center. Maybe they don't even want it. So um, using some cutting edge technology, uh, plugging it into your phone and using um, a saliva sample, you should be able to get a result in about 30 minutes. 
And we hope to bring this forward by the end of this year. And we think, you know, again, we're one of the few companies that's working on diagnostics, vaccines, and indeed treatments uh, for COVID-19. I think we're really at the forefront. We thought we needed to bring our expertise in, uh, and in the areas to diagnostics to complete the picture. Interesting uh, to be able to do that. Can you talk about uh, a couple of therapeutics and one, one uh, obviously somewhat controversial, uh, you did donate hydroxychloroquine, 100 million doses, and that's not the only one that, uh, that you're working on. And interesting that so many anti or, or immune related therapeutics uh, like anti-rheumatoid arthritis drugs might have some, some benefit here because of the uh, whatever it is that coronavirus does in the lungs in terms of cytokine storms, et cetera. So you have a, you're partnering with Regeneron. What are the prospects for Kevzara and, and what do you think of hydroxychloroquine and its, its benefits? Well, you know, um, we started looking at these medicines because of early anecdotal feedback from China where many different approaches were tested. These medicines are approved for different illnesses, and we wanted to have no regrets. You know, if they'd been used experimentally, we wanted to step forward, do the clinical trials, do them at speed, and provide the medicines. It seemed like something we just simply had to do as a company. And, you know, and that's what we've done. And we're just a week or two away from knowing whether, um, whether they are effective and can change the course of the disease for patients. I don't think there's anything controversial. I think what really matters is to do the clinical study and find out. And we couldn't wait because if we waited uh, before letting people know we provide them, it was just unnecessary. So we've come to the front, we're making the drugs available, we'll do the studies, and if they demonstrate the effect, then we'll bring them forward for patients across the world. Yeah, it's not, not, the controversy is not necessarily engendered by... Uh, by the people working on the drugs, uh, Paul, that's for sure. I won't, I won't point any fingers, but we certainly do have some controversy associated with, with just about everything uh, we do in today's world. We appreciate your time this morning and, and your efforts, uh, Paul Hudson, uh, uh, CEO of Santa Fe. And, and uh, can't, I just can't, my smartphone's going to be able to do everything, even, you know, test me for coronavirus eventually. But uh, good luck with everything and, and bring us back uh, and up, or come back and update us on some of this. Thanks, Paul. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. And that's Squawk Pod for today and for another week. Thank you for listening and sticking with us as we work from our couches to bring you interviews recorded on the phone, on Skype, on Zoom. Who knows what we'll think of next? Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. They are there every morning at 6 a.m. They can't go anywhere else, at least not yet. I wasn't that happy that gyms are going to reopen right away. Uh, I've been enjoying not doing that. See, when I got married, uh, you know, yes, you could. Thought, you know, you can stop dating, stop exercising, right? You're on TV every day. Yeah, look out. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. 
We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend and stay well. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.